One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Ramona Osabel, who joined me via Skype. She is the author of the novels No One Is Here Except All of Us and Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty and the short story collection A Guide to Being Born. She is the winner of the Penn Center USA Literary Award for Fiction. Her novel, Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty, takes place in 1976 in Martha's Vineyard and tells the story of a young, wealthy couple, Fern and Edgar, who are living off of Fern's family money. When it disappears overnight, the newly impoverished couple must decide how they want to proceed, raise their three children, and figure out what values they hold dear. We began the interview with Asabel explaining a moment in the book where she reflects on the idea that there is no room in art for fear. That idea kind of exists in the world that you have to be super brave and fearless and willing to put yourself up for all kinds of judgment to be an artist or a writer. And I think there's definitely some truth in that. It's, there, there is exposure for sure. But I also think that it's kind of an intimidation tactic, because actually, I think that we need fear to be artists, that that's why you're doing it, you're writing towards that. And you're, you know, you're, you're searching that kind of those dark corners out, and giving them a little bit of light. So if you were really fearless, if you really felt like there was nothing, nothing terrified you in the world, then what, okay, go play golf and do take a Pilates class. What are you even doing here? I don't know. I think that fear is actually really important. And I talk about that with students sometimes that sort of like this idea that you need a thick skin to be a writer, that you're going to be up for all kinds of rejection and you have to kind of guard yourself. But I think, again, like, nope, you should be porous. You should be available to the entire human experience. That's what's going to make your writing 
real and more interesting. And you have to go as the creator, you kind of have to go all the way to the top and then all the way to the bottom with your characters. And you have to mean it with them and be afraid with them if they're afraid and, you know, elated if they're elated and in for the entire crazy ride. That makes sense. Was that a line or a concept that you wanted to get into this novel? I didn't know that it was until I wrote it, but I did. There's a whole strain in the book about sort of gender expectations and uh, artists in the book who, female artists, who have feel that sort of, that kind of intimidation. Like, you, you, only, you can only be here if you're really tough. You have to be twice as good as all the boys and you have to, you know, have short hair and be cool and smoke and, you know, be the kind of macho version of yourself that doesn't yet exist if you want to stay. And there's, I think I, I resist that. I feel like, yeah, sure. If that's what you actually are, but otherwise everything and every voice is necessary for this creation of whatever we're all creating together. So basically in this novel, Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty, you set up a question for this couple, which is, they were very wealthy, and they lost all their money overnight. How were they going to exist in the world? So tell me about posing this question. It must have been nagging at you to write a whole book about it. So can you talk about that? So my family on one side was once fabulously wealthy and of a very high status, you know, old, old American family here since like before there was anything except for the people who, of course, were here before, but at the very sort of beginnings of what became America. And they all went on to do, you know, to be politicians and ambassadors and to have great fortunes. And then it sort of slowly in in the real world it slowly disappeared in the book it disappears very quickly but i grew up i was kind of i was kind of the the last generation after the money was gone so my mom still grew up with like cooks and nannies and stuff but by the time she was an adult and i was a little kid that was all over and we still had the kind of stories of that that life we didn't have any of the actual wealth anymore. So I, I thought about it my whole life, sort of just this question that I carry around. It's like, in what ways am I sorry that I am, you know, don't have $2 million in the bank? And in what ways am I grateful? Because I, there were definitely people in the family who felt really burdened by their wealth and by their status and the expectations of their class, especially women who felt like, I want out. I don't, I don't want to be looked at from this point of view and that to, you know, to my, all of my comings and goings to be written about in the newspaper. And I just want to be anonymous and like everybody else. And also there's real guilt for the money. Great fortunes are not earned by being kind to people. So, you know, there was like definitely slavery in one little portion of things and, and lots of business dealings that probably were not good for the people at the bottom and these were thinking people who understood that and knew that with the, the funds they were living off of had not been earned in a way that they would feel good about. So I also have my whole life kind of felt a kind of gratitude for the fact that I'm not spending that money, that I'm kind of, you know, not carrying that forth and having that support me. So 
I knew I wanted to write about it eventually. And it took me a really long time to figure out a way in, partly because I think it was hard as a young writer to trust that I and my readers would have empathy for rich people who had been knocked down a few notches that there wasn't, you know, I didn't wanted to write a book that you didn't open the first page and immediately roll your eyes and to actually like feel their experience in a real way. So it took a long time of kind of holding onto it and thinking about it and carrying it around in my head before I trusted that I could do it. And it still took after that, you know, even after I'd started it and gave it a try, it took a lot of drafts to keep finding a truer truth for each of the characters that was complicated enough that we could both feel their experience and relate to some portion of it and also still see from the outside that they were very lucky in ways that they might not see. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ramona Osabel, author of the novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So your main characters were Fern and Edgar, and they married very young so this is sort of centered around their life as a couple. She came from old money. He came from new money. So when you were just speaking about your effort to create empathy for these characters, how would you describe that to your readers or for listeners who haven't read it, how you incorporated that empathy into this story? And just to explain it really quickly for the readers, there's this couple, they lose money overnight they have three children he goes off with a a wealthy woman that he meets at the beach and they have their own adventure and she ends up going off on a road trip with a giant and then the kids are left on their own because the both parents think the other is there uh well I guess partly I did actually feel the empathy because I sort of had these old family stories about relatives who have been truly burdened by the money. So I felt like I had, I had an immediate personal connection to that sort of sensation. And, and then just that I thought a lot about the kind of places that we all hold on the very vast ladder of all the different kinds of privilege and having that there are in the world. And that most of us are not way down at the very bottom where we really truly have no resources and no support network. Most of us are somewhere in the middle kind of zone and that we probably actually have a lot to lose. 
So this is a, I've kind of ratcheted that up in this book that we, you know, turned up the volume on that kind of register that they're all very, they have, they have a whole lot to lose. But I think any of us, most, you know, the people who are going to actually read this book are probably people who have something to lose and who, from another person's point of view, look like they're very comfortable. You know, that all of us probably are. There are people who are in a position of less and people in a position of more. So that the scale is actually more complicated and more kind of uh, balanced, that we're each kind of holding that balance, I guess, within our lives. It seemed like you're, you are also exploring marriage. So can you talk about your interest in, in centering it in this couple? Yeah, that I knew because it was a, I wanted it to not be kind of a really individual perspective. I felt like if I was going to think about wealth and privilege and race and class and all of the bigger themes, gender that are in the book, I wanted a range of characters and experiences and I wanted to have, I, li- I wanted there to be the two sort of main characters who have in many ways really similar experiences. And, you know, on paper, at, before the money is gone, they kind of look like they might be on level playing fields. But then once everything gets flipped upside down, it really changes. And the way they each feel about going forward in their lives as rich people, if Edgar goes back to take over the family steel company, which is available to him, but sort of the antithesis of everything he believes in. So there's there they have this this kind of magic out, but it kind of requires Edgar becoming the exact person he doesn't want to be. So there's the, they as they each sort of go on these separate adventures, they're thinking about what they the life that they want to build now that they're starting from the beginning and whether they want to build it together and how that might work and who they each actually are stripped of all of their kind of possessions and expectations of their class that that and that spreads there's a lot of other characters we meet the parents of both the halves of the couple and the giant that Fern is driving cross country with and the woman that Edgar is sailing with and the children and their teacher and there are a lot of other sort of pieces of that prism of experience. And I wanted them to all kind of collect together. Basically, the loss of the money is sort of what puts this big earthquake through this marriage between Fern and Edgar. And they both go off in their own ways to have affairs or intimate friendships with strangers. And you write sometime in the book, as marriage is a recognizable thing and an unrecognizable thing, or at least you're getting to that. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little in terms of your plot and your characters. That's a good question. I was thinking about the, those expectations that the world has for us as people in general, people of a certain class, women or men, white people or people of color, all of these forces that come from the outside that are kind of like, I started to think of them as actual structures that we are like within the walls of these organized ideas. And marriage is one of those ideas. And it feels like maybe this is less true now, but certainly in the 60s and 70s that you kind of did enter into an actual home in a way that was supposed to carry you and was not built by your own hands, that it came from somewhere else and there were rules and stipulations and you had made a kind of promise that went beyond your own feelings. And that especially 
in the kind of gender separation that that what it meant to be in a marriage as a husband was really different than what it meant to be in a marriage as a wife and what it meant to be in a family as a father versus a mother. So I thought about them kind of walking out of that house, that physical structure and into these kind of great wide open spaces and what, but they're still married. They're not leaving each other yet. They haven't decided what's going to happen. So they're, they, they have the kind of idea and the memory of the marriage goes with them, but they are losing the, the kind of boards and nails that were containing them. And what happens to the actual humans once they're outside of that? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ramona Osabel, author of the novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty. Our interview was recorded on Skype. One of the things that you put in there that is is more about creative thinking and your imagination is Fern is asked to be a bride in a wedding at an old folks home with Alzheimer's. And it's this wonderful scene because they don't realize that they don't know her for all. Some of them might think she's their daughter and she has conversations with them and they say, oh, it's so good to see you again. Or I'm so proud of you when they talk to her as the bride. How did you come up with this idea and what was it like to write this scene? I heard that this is a real thing that is done in the world. And I heard maybe I think it was a news story about it years ago. And I lodged it somewhere in there as like, that is the the thing that gets me as a writer and that makes me immediately know that I want to write something is this like crashing together of super sad and super beautiful. And I think that that idea is exactly those things. It's how terrible that this, a group of people have are so far from their own minds that they have no idea who's standing in front of them, but also how wonderful that who cares? We love who we love. And it's sort of arbitrary, maybe who comes across your path. So let's pretend that this is someone who is you've known since she was three, and that you're so delighted to see her walk down the aisle that day. I think it's really anyway, it just was very compelling to me. So I stored it away. And I didn't know what I would use it for. And then when I was working on this story, it seemed like the perfect partly the perfect way to sort of propel Fern out of her house and into another version of life. And also to start to upend those ideas of marriage and structure and what, but you know, what if, what is, so here she is, she's like been fake married to a giant who then says, you know, I'm driving West. Do you want to come? And like, everything is already kind of unreal. So she says, yeah, let's do it. Do you have this sense of whimsy as a person or how does it get on the page? Some of these creative thoughts. Yeah, that I think is actually the, probably the truest, most kind of essential representation of how I think about the world and how I think about the world as a writer. This book is very straight compared to my first two. The first novel is about a tiny little Jewish village in Northern Romania in 1939. And the villagers realize at the beginning of the book that the war that they've been hearing about has arrived and that there's no physical escape. All of the borders are closed. Ships are not leaving anymore. 
And so they gather together and they decide, all of the villagers in this tiny place, that they are going to simply pretend that nothing else exists. They're going to start the world over again and they are going to shut it out. That They are the only things that have ever existed and they're starting at the beginning. And then my second book was a collection of short stories, many of which have some kind of fantastical or magical element. Like there's a story in the book where that takes place in a town where everybody grows a new arm every time they fall in love. Um, and there, there are other, you know, a guy whose wife is pregnant and he in kind of sympathy and uh, sort of the feeling of disuse, he's, he ends up sprouting these drawers in his chest that he can actually open and close. So then I, then I was, you know, I finished those books and I started this other book and I didn't know what, how, how weird it would be and where those elements of kind of strangeness and whimsy would come from, or if they would be there. I try to generally approach every writing project as I'm open. I'm open to whatever it needs to be. And I'm not, I don't have an agenda as much as possible. So with this one, I just kept following it and it kept feeling like sometimes I would open one of those doors, like the, the Alzheimer's wedding and it worked and it felt right and true for the book. And sometimes I would open something, I'm trying to think of an example, but I can't think of one off the top of my head, but you know, where it was like, no, that's not, that isn't sticking. That doesn't feel like the right thing. So it ended up being, you know, it's, there's nothing that couldn't happen in our actual world. It's all essentially realism, but you know, there's a giant and there's this fake wedding and there's the, the general idea that the parents have each gone off, not realizing that, that no one is at home with the children and the children's kind of imaginary universe that they're creating over the course of that week. So there's definitely, definitely lots of expressions of my weird self in there, but they're kind of surrounded by a lot more, regular stories, like sort of a more, a different kind of straightforward universe than some of my other work. This takes place during the 60s and 70s. Well, I'm going to ask, why did you choose that time period? I chose it partly because I wanted to be post like the 1950s structure and stricture, but I also wanted to be a little bit past the the big hope of the you know the the brave new world that we were that it wasn't we were not in the thick of the 60s the characters were a little too old for that to be part of it so they they weren't you know off enjoying it they were kind of looking on from the outside a little bit later and seeing the sort of slow decline and that from the and then into the 70s you know, in a whole, in a whole new section, looking back as like, well, what a lot of things changed in that big moment we had of change. And a lot of things didn't. And that a little bit of a come down, I kind of wanted to be in that kind of hangover state a little bit in the book. And I also wanted the, it was just a fun period of time to write because there's so much physical detail. I, I enjoyed looking at pictures of on the internet of set bathrooms from the seventies. Like, you know, there's a lot of avocado green and orange. And I just felt like I, I appreciated the physicality of it and the way it was, it feels so saturated from the outside as a time period. And I'm sure that, you know, they all are, if you start to think about any moment, but these ones were especially so and a good, a good place to be situated as a writer. 
So within that time period, you had Edgar in his effort to not embrace his money, decide that he wants to enlist. And through connections, he doesn't have to go to Vietnam. And he ends up writing letters to parents about their dead sons. Can you talk about this position that he had and how you chose it? I knew I didn't want him to like be on the front lines and experience the, you know, horrible constant death and all of that. That was, that was, there was that war or any war because partly I think we've, we have seen so much of it and I have, I am so not an authority that I didn't feel like that was my story to tell exactly. And I wanted He's got, as a character, he's sort of had the legs kicked out from under him a lot of times in his life. I think he felt he felt like growing up as part of this super elite class was an existence of having legs kicked out from under him, that he wasn't expected to think or really actually know anything except for how to keep reproducing the money. So he's his leaving was his first chance to try to kind of like become a person who was autonomous and who could function and think and do and whose mind mattered in the world. And then, and then it all sort of falls apart again. So he enlists to try to feel like a regular person and to just be one of the people fighting the war because that's what everybody else is doing and why should he get out of it? And so I, I felt like it would be, if he got what he wanted, then that would make a less interesting story. So he instead gets those legs kicked out from under him again. It's not like you're going to get that satisfying, you know, traumatic experience that he's sort of seeking. But instead, you're going to go to the far north of Alaska and be in a tiny cabin with these a couple of other guys for 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 at first hardly any reason at all, and then just for the sake of writing letters to these parents of boys who have died in the real war that's happening far away. That like kind of like the, the feeling of impotence, I think was part of what I was writing towards with him all along. And this is one of those major life experiences where that expressed itself. And was that a real job? I don't know, actually. I mean, I'm sure somebody was doing that. Probably they were more form letters than, than I have it, but somebody was typing them out and bringing them over. He didn't do the actual transporting of them and the knocking on the doors, but he tried to go off form a little bit and to sort of, you know, say something real about people who of course he had never met, but he was scolded for that. So then after that, he stayed straight. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yes, I can. So I'm going to read you the very beginning of a story by Amy Bender called The Rememberer, which is a story that I read early in my fiction writing life. And that it's very short. And it's I think it's basically perfect. I've read it so many times that I've taught it over and over. And I love it for its straightforwardness. And it's like, sort of magical universe. My lover is experiencing reverse evolution. I tell no one. I don't know how it happened, only that one day he was my lover and the next he was some kind of ape. It's been a month and now he's a sea turtle. 
I keep him on the counter in a glass baking pan filled with salt water. Ben, I say to his small protruding head, can you understand me? And he stares with eyes like little droplets of tar, and I drip tears into the pan, a sea of me. Do you want to say anything about why you chose that? I love it because it's so, like, the. I think about this a lot when, whenever there's some sort of magical or fantastical element that it has to be the, the, the bigger that element is, the deeper into the kind of like little meaty heart you have to go, that the, the emotional core has to be so completely true and strong. It, otherwise, it feels like a gimmick. And I think she does that really well here, that it's it feels like this mournful, beautiful sort of love song to a person who isn't there anymore, which happens in the world all the time. We've all lost somebody that way. And this in this case, he is, you know, going from a man to an ape to a turtle and, and on down. But the feeling of loss is so recognizable and so real. And I just love the way she does that all. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ramona Ausubel, author of the novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage that you wrote that was maybe tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like how it turned out? Yes. So... I'm going to read, let's see, I think I'll read again the very beginning of the story that I mentioned earlier, where this is the place where everybody grows a new arm when they fall in love. The story is called Tributaries. The girls are wormed out across the floor under down comforters, even though daytime is hardly over, trying to get a jump start on the slumber party. My parents both have perfect love arms, Genevieve tells her friends. Both of them can write. They write love letters to each other. It's almost sick. No one thinks this is sick. Everyone wants this. Feeney, Mary Beth, Sarah P., and Sarah T. all want to have the proof. Though the girls know many two-armers, even some who seem happy and in love, what they talk about are those with love-grown arms. My mom doesn't have anything, and my dad just has fingers growing out of his chest. He can't control them, and they grab at anything that is close enough, said Feeney. My grandmother has seven, but she was always married to my grandfather. She says she fell in love with him over and over, Sarah T. adds. And why did you choose this? This was one of those stories that I wrote kind of early in writing fiction. I wrote poetry. I was I thought of myself as a very serious poet in college. I was young, but I really meant it, and I didn't really write any prose until after I graduated and had this idea for a novel and ended up applying to graduate school and wrote pages in order to have anything to submit for my application. So I basically knew nothing about writing fiction when I, when I started school as a graduate student. So this was one of the stories that I wrote. I think I wrote the beginning of it that first year and I wrote it alongside my no, it would have been the second year because I was teaching creative writing and I wrote it alongside my class. I'm grateful for it because I think I figured out a lot of things about how to how a story needs to be built. Um, that the that thing about the sort of the the more of uh, the more strangeness you have, the more both 
mundane, regular architecture you need to hold the strangeness up and the deeper you need to go into the emotional core. And the story, it's such a completely, you know, strange premise, but I... I'm, I guess I'm proud of myself for trying it, that it didn't, that I didn't think like, that's a, whatever. Okay. Yeah. That I'm never going to be able to pull that off, but that I, that I went for it and I, and I figured out how to make it feel real and to echo the experience of love and the transformations that we all go through and the many iterations that love sort of comes at us with and the, the versions of ourselves that we turn into and our sort of deformities and all of it. I just felt like I kind of, it ended up coming together in a way that, that made me happy. And I'm always glad, glad that I ended up writing that story. Where do you write? I, I have little kids, so I write wherever I can. I used to write in bed a lot, but I don't do that so much anymore these days. I write in cafes and I write on the couch and I write on, there's a little chair in my son's room. I write when he's out at school I, there's a lot of moving around. I don't have an office or, or I, my desk is currently broken and it's in the middle of the toy disaster. So I don't really have a writing space. I try to be infinitely flexible. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I actually don't really ever think I can get away from writing and I don't want to. I am sometimes not actively working on something. Of course, many hours of the day, I'm not actively working on something. But one of the things that I love about being a fiction writer is that the work follows me. It's like I'm living these two lives. So as I'm going along with my regular day, you know, dropping somebody off at school or washing out the lunchboxes or teaching a class, whatever I'm up to that day, I have whatever I'm working on hanging around in the back of my mind. And I I so often I've had some huge moment of figuring something out or understanding a level of the story that I'd never seen before while doing something else. And I just, I think that's one of the real pleasures. There's a lot of hardness about being a writer and a lot of just real work, but that's one of the complete pleasures is that I get to have these stories just kind of hanging out with me like a little dog. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I go back and forth. The very first readers are always either my husband, who is a super smart, really, really helpful reflector, especially for me. He's a, he's a great reader and uh, reads a lot in general, but he also knows me really well and knows what I am capable of and also a lot of my you know obsessions he's familiar with. So he's a great first reader. And then I also have a little tiny writing group in Los Angeles, which is not where I live. So we don't meet as often as we would like, but they are all, it's just four of us and people from my graduate program who were kind of my favorite writers in the, in the bunch who were also geographically available. So it was a good, it's a good little group. And we go, so usually it's, I show things to them and then I show things to my husband and then they go off to my agent after that. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, you know, cookies mostly <laughs> but uh there's the like the first round of dealing with it is eat something good and be mad and complain a lot to people who love me and then the next round or many maybe maybe it's quite a few rounds of the first and then finally eventually I have tried to get to the place of oh well I guess I have to do something twice as good now to convince that person that I'm worth it and to kind of take the energy of that 
rejection and try to turn it into some sort of fuel to push me along and do something else good soon. And what is your favorite word? That's so hard. I don't even know if I can possibly answer that. I can't. I can't. I can't. It's too hard. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Ramona Osabel, author of the novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.